Good morning. Glad you're here. How intently do you focus on Jesus? How carefully do you hear his words? And these questions certainly would become suitable for the first century church, but also for you and for me today. We are called to, to intently and purposefully set our eyes on Jesus and listen carefully to his words. Uh, this becomes the message of the Gospel of Mark. In chapters 1, 2, and 3, our focus has been upon the identity of Christ. This is Jesus. And now, chapter 4, our place today where we study God's Word, focuses upon what Jesus has said. Who He is and what He has said. This moves us forward in faith. So I invite you in to Mark chapter 4 as we discover life lessons along the way and learn from the parables. It was Walter Wink who said this concerning the parables of our Lord. Parables can never be reduced to an idea or a theological statement. They are actually the jeweled portals to another world. I love that statement because Jesus in his parables raised the perspective of man from this earth to his kingdom. In fact, most of the parables, either indirectly or directly, addressed the kingdom of God made known in Jesus and how we, with our faith in Christ, can have that kingdom affecting how we live, what we say, and, and how we join Jesus in his mission in this world. In fact, through faith in Jesus, we are experiencing his kingdom set up in our lives and in our hearts, and then one day, He'll return to establish his kingdom forever. And this becomes the message of many of the parables, if not most of the parables, that Jesus taught. And so I'm excited to, to lean in to Mark chapter 4 to hear these unique passages of scriptures we know as parables that lead us closer to understanding the heart of Jesus and to understanding how to live above this world and to live for the kingdom. Well, I love the statement, life lessons along the way, because Mark's narrative moves fast and the disciples are right with Jesus step after step, noticing how in his earth, earthly ministry, he began to announce the coming of his kingdom. And now there are those intentional pauses where Jesus seems to stop the action and teach. And chapter four becomes one of those brief pauses where there are many statements and parables that direct our hearts deeper to the Lord. So I invite you into this wonderful time of engaging with God's Word. And as we focus on the parables, a bit of context becomes necessary. So look with me at the context of the parables, beginning with chapter 4, verse 1, and we read, Mark 4, verse 1, He, meaning Jesus, began to teach by the sea. And such a very large crowd gathered to him that he got into a boat in the sea and sat down, and the whole crowd was by the sea on the land. Oh, this becomes a very descriptive position of our Lord. To embrace a bit of context, before we dig into the parables, we need to first consider the position. Not only the posture of Jesus sitting in a boat just off the shore of Galilee, but also the the position geographically. Many would say that 
In Mark chapter 3, verse 9, where Jesus' Galilean ministry took him by the seashore and there was a boat involved as Jesus instructed that a boat would need to be prepared, uh, most scholarship would say that passage links directly with this. And so, you know, in Mark's narrative, in his gospel, those episodes tend to stack one upon the other. So it's likely possible Mark had all of this in mind that we're about to study in chapter 4 when the Holy Spirit began giving him the words, as we have recorded in chapter 3, verse 9. So I just enjoy sharing that with you so that you can see the flow and the harmony and how, again, the gospel is just so filled with facts of, of who our Lord was and is and how he reigns now. But those years of earthly ministry describing how he lived and moved and led his disciples and taught become very real for you and for me today. And so consider the position of Jesus by the Sea of Galilee, having placed himself in a boat, teaching back to the shore. In fact, all throughout Mark's narrative, you'll see a theme of Jesus with a boat and the disciples gathered there to show the fellowship Jesus had with his disciples, especially during the Galilean ministry. Second to the position of the context, let's now look at the parables themselves in a broad view before we look at them individually. Uh, verse 2, we read from verse 2. And he, meaning Jesus, was teaching them many things in the parables, and he was saying these things to him. Now, the emphasis falls upon the fact that Jesus intently taught through what we now know is a tool of communication called parables. Now, the word parable comes from a, a compound word in the Greek, meaning para, beside, like parallel, and then bellows, meaning to throw to the side. So the word parable actually means to place two things side by side for comparison. The source definition from the language of parables indicates a story that is told from a heavenly perspective for earthly application. And these parables Jesus taught, numbering uh, well above 30 in all the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are demonstrated in short parables, similes, analogies, comparisons, and they all speak powerfully a very clear truth, a heavenly perspective for application in this present day. But I'd like to take you to a third uh, feature of the context, the problem. We've looked at the position and the parables, but now there seems to be a problem that Jesus actually addresses. Now, he didn't address this until verse 10, so we move forward to verse 10 through 12 just a bit before we start looking at the specific parables, because within these three verses, there exists a problem that Jesus addressed. Now in verse 10, as soon as Jesus was alone, his followers along with the 12, and the disciples are known all throughout Mark's gospel as the 12, they begin asking Jesus about the parables. Now Jesus evidently during his teaching withdrew a bit as was custom, and as he withdrew, the crowd pressed in even more. And the parable and the disciples and all those listening came to Jesus and asked him about the parables. They were actually asking Jesus, you're teaching us all these parables. We need to know what, what they mean. And then after that question, again, reflecting an inquiry that's recorded in Matthew 13, verse 10 as well, when the disciples said, why are you teaching this way? So the answer was addressed in Matthew 13, and the answer becomes addressed here. Jesus said in verse 11, to you have been given the mystery of the kingdom, but to those who are outside, they only see the parables. Well, this indicates through the word mystery, not something that is abstruse or something that is 
is cryptid, but actually something that is past the understanding of those who are the uninitiated, those who've not surrendered their heart to Jesus, those who are willfully back on the peripheral, only observing Christ from a distance. And Jesus referenced that the truths he's teaching about the kingdom are like a mystery to them, but Jesus did not intend that they would be hidden, but their hearts and their disbelief and their rejection pushed them away so that they can't understand the things of the kingdom. But for the disciples, Jesus said, you can understand. And then in verse 12, Jesus delineates out uh, two identities, those who understand or who have ears to hear the things of the kingdom and those who have actually rejected the truth. And Jesus quotes Isaiah, particularly chapter 6, verse 9 through 10, where in Isaiah's day, he was preaching to Israel in anticipation of God's judgment he would bring through the Assyrians. And as Isaiah preached and prophesied to Israel, the part, the message that Isaiah preached was actually a message that indicated they'll not hear. Their hearts are hardened. And so Isaiah quoted, uh, uh, Jesus quoted Isaiah in verse 12, so that while seeing, they may not see, while perceiving, they may not hear. And if they hear, they will not understand. Otherwise, they may return, uh, return and be forgiven. Now, in no way does this verse indicate that Jesus falls back on his desire to see all men saved. He obviously desires to see all men saved and forgiven. God has, has obviously sought to, to see how all can come to know him, but we know that all will not come to know him. Many will reject him. And here there becomes a reference of those who have their heart calloused against God, even as in the days of the prophet Isaiah. In fact, there could be a reference back to chapter 3 where the Pharisees blasphemed against the Holy Spirit and their hearts were jaded. And it was as if stone cold, they rejected God. But even in that rejection, even in that rejection, God will perform his will and purpose, even as he did in the days of Israel. And obviously it it is a part of the history God had with his people that at times he allowed individuals' hearts to be hardened so that he could accomplish his will. And we see evidence of that here. But the problem also resonates back to the disciples that they would actually understand, that they would lean in, that they could truly hear Christ and understand his truth and apply his truth to their lives. So today we build from this context, from this problem that was addressed, and we need to make absolutely certain that we're listening, that we're leaning in, that our hearts are open so that we can hear the truths of Christ and thereby apply his truths and grow. And so from this point forward, we return back to verse 3 now, having looked at the context, and we discover four lessons from what I like to term the kingdom parables. Chapter 4 is filled with four specific parables that can point us to the kingdom uh, in our hearts, point us to how we are to live according to the kingdom of Christ. And with each parable, there is a significant lesson. So now let's move back to verse 3 and read verse 3 through 9. And Jesus said, listen to this, behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he was sowing, some seed fell beside the road, and the birds came and ate it up. And other seed fell on rocky ground where it didn't have much soil, and immediately it sprang up because it had no depth. And after the sun had risen, it was scorched, and because it had no root, it withered away. Verse 7, other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked it, and it yielded no crop. But there was seed that fell on the good soil, and as they grew up and increased, they yielded a crop and produced 30, 60, and 100-fold. And then Jesus said after this parable, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. 
He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, within this parable, you'll see a pattern of three. All throughout the Gospel of Mark, you see a repeated pattern of three. And so you thought pastors came up with this. No, it started way back in the mid of the first century. Mark loved patterns of three. Now, notice the pattern of three concerning the type of seed that will not bring fruitfulness. Seed number one, verse three, a seed that fell alongside the road where the ground was firm and was not cultivated. In the ancient agrarian society of Palestine, the method of true cultivation would be the plowing of the ground, planting of the seed, and then replowing so that the seed is protected from the birds, from the elements, but also deeply seeded so there can be growth. But Jesus tells the parable of a farmer or a rancher or a sower who threw the seed on ground that was not cultivated, ground that was near a road, uh, that was on side of the road, and because the ground was not cultivated, the seed lay there, and the birds came by and picked it up. Luke's representation of this parable also indicates that the seed would be trampled on by men. So that's one type of seed that brings no fruitfulness. A second type of seed fell on the rocky ground where there was a layer of dirt inches deep over the bedrock. And because there was no depth, although the soil allowed the seed to germinate and spring up, eventually, because there was no depth, when the elements came, when the heat uh, rose, uh, the plant withered because, again, there was no depth. And there's a third seed that brings no fruitfulness, seed that fell among the thorns. Now, again, in agrarian societies, uh, common to ancient Palestine, a farmer would likely at times burn off a field to remove all the trash and, and the thrash and all that that would grow up in thorns and thistles. But oftentimes, if the burning was done very quickly, there could be actually roots of thorns still under the ground. And you would need to pull all of that out in order to truly have a pure field so that the wheat could grow up without being hindered. But when seed falls in ground that actually has that thorn bed in the soil, the thorns grow up and choke out the seed. Now, Jesus told this parable first by mentioning three seeds that do not bring fruitfulness. Seed that is by the road, seed that fell on rocky ground, and seed that was sown among thorns. And then in verse 8, Jesus describes the one good soul and the three responses of what happens when seed goes into the good soul. Again, you see the pattern of threes. In verse 8, other seeds fell on the good soul. And here's the three uh, producing results of the seed meeting the good soul. First, it yields a crop of 30. Second, a crop of 60. And then third, a crop of a hundredfold. So one seed ancient records show, could actually bring about 35 head of wheat, sometimes double, 60, sometimes even a hundredfold. Now, although this seems overwhelming and miraculous, this is very possible. And there are, are many stories of how one seed can produce that much fruitfulness. And so 30, 60, a hundredfold represents the the process of three ways that that good seed in the good soil can be productive. Now, when Jesus told this parable, there were those who probably thought, oh, this is a nice story. We understand uh, that the farmer made a mistake with the first three seeds, but he certainly uh, made the right decision in the last seed. But we're not sure what we need to do with this truth. There were some blind to this, including the disciples. Now, let's move forward to verse 13. And Jesus said, do you not understand this parable? 
And then Jesus explained the parable, and we come to the first of four truths from the kingdom parables, attention. Jesus taught this parable to remind his disciples that they must give careful attention to his words of the kingdom. They must listen well. They must lean in and understand that what Jesus teaches us is not just rhetoric. It's not just information that we can file because we are spiritual people and we need to have spiritual knowledge. No, Jesus spoke so that we might have life and so that our faith might become more deeply ignited so that we might think more like the kingdom than we think like this earth. And so Jesus said, you need to pay careful attention to my words. So I have to ask you, how closely and carefully are you listening to the truths of Jesus? Now, with this parable explained, we uncover from the three bad seeds, three negative conditions of our heart. Jesus addresses this beginning in verse 13. Jesus said, do you not understand, verse 14, the sower sows, verse 15, and these, the seeds beside the road, these are the ones who when the seed is sown, the the word is there, but immediately Satan comes and takes the word away. This can reference a resistant heart. So the first of three negative ways that we that we fail in giving careful attention to Jesus would be a resistant heart or a resistant soul. We hear the word, but because our heart, our soul becomes already aligned with another affection, the truth lays there. And as the birds would pick up the seed on, on a well-traveled path, the enemy can come and distract us so that we miss the, miss the truth. Two major distractions the enemy uses to take the truth from us is either our sinfulness or our pride. In our sinfulness, we can't hear Jesus. Our affections are for ourselves, the flesh, or the world. Or in our pride, we can't hear the truth of Jesus well because we feel we have no need and no desperate a desire to understand the truth that we may apply the truth and grow. And so the first seed represents a calloused heart, a well-worn heart with affections of the world or pride that keeps us from hearing Jesus. A second negative heart that keeps us from giving careful attention to the words of Christ is mentioned in verse 17. In a similar way, remember the seed that fell on the rocky soil? Uh, An inch or two of good soil, but on top of the bedrock where there's no depth. And this can certainly reference superficial attention. In, in a heart of superficial attention, we like the words. Much different from the resistant soul who never really hears the word, the, the superficial listener from this second seed, the seed in the rocky soul, actually likes to hear the word and rejoices with the word and may say amen to the truth. But because there is no depth when affliction and persecution comes, two words Jesus uses, when life rises, raises up against that person with a rocky-souled heart, he forgets the truth. He or she forgets, and they give in to the pressures of the world. So we have a resistant soul, and secondly, we have a superficial listening. But a third condition that does not give careful attention we find in verse 18, then there are those who are like the seed among the thorns because the ground has not been cleared out. The worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things chokes out the word. Now the soul is there and the soul 
left to itself would be good. But because spiritually, the desires for other things, the deceitfulness of riches, and the worries of the world have been allowed to control the soul, the heart. When the truth is planted, when Jesus speaks, when the seed of the word goes in, all of those cares choke it out. Even right now, you may be hearing the word preached and taught, but because you're inundated with all the cares and concerns around you, that perhaps you're even taking notes or listening, but you're not really hearing because all the cares choke out that word at the instance that it's spoken into your life. Make no mistake, the word is being preached and spoken, but the condition of our heart determines whether or not we're ready to receive the word or not. And three negative ways that do not bring fruitfulness is the resistant soul, the superficial listening, and then third, the unclean life where all these cares and concerns are allowed to come in and pollute. But then look in verse 20, and then there are those where the seed is sown in good soil and they hear the word, they accept it and they bear fruit. Now, do you see the pattern of three again with the good soul? Now in the good soul, there was a pattern of three in the harvest, 30, 60, and 100 fold. Here in the spiritual application, verse 20, there is a threefold uh, harvest, spiritually speaking, when our hearts listen and are clean from all the cares of the world. And, and we're not just listening superficially. We truly desire to hear Jesus speak. When this happens, we hear the word. We truly hear. We accept it, meaning we apply it. And we say, yes, I desire to live after this truth. And then when that happens, we bear fruit. This becomes a beautiful presentation of giving careful attention to the word of God. Are we hearing Jesus speak? In a special CNN report, Dr. Tanya Lerman, a psychological anthropologist with Stanford University, offered a surprising supportive scientific analysis of evangelical Christians who claim they hear God speak to them. She concludes by saying, science can't tell us whether God generated the voice that Abraham or Augustine heard, but it can tell us that many of these events are normal, part of the fabric of human perception. And then Dr. Lerman concludes with this powerful example of hearing Jesus speak. When the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. sat at his kitchen table in the winter of 1956, terrified by the fear of what might happen to him and his family during the Montgomery bus boycott, he, King, said he heard the voice of Jesus promising, I will be with you. And King went forward. And it's time for you and I to go forward knowing that Jesus has spoken to our hearts. His truths are active in our lives, and we must give careful attention to the truth of Jesus if we are to go forward in our faith. Now, let's move quickly to a second parable. And the second parable locates us in the opening of verse 21. I like to term this as the parable of the lamp. Now, the emphasis lies upon not just the truth, but what one will actually do with the truth. So we move from the first application, the first parable, attention, wherein we've learned to give careful attention to Jesus' words, and we now move to action, where we give consistent action to the words. James says, do not just hear the words, but be doers of the word. Do not look at the word 
you hear from Jesus as you look in a mirror and then walk away and forget what you see. And so there needs to be consistent action, consistent with the truth we've heard. And the next parable can help us uh, to, to bring this application to our hearts. Verse 21, a lamp is not brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed. Now, again, in, in ancient Palestine, a house was lighted, of course, by lamps. And one would carry the lamp in to light the room. They would not slide the lamp, the lantern, under the bed, nor would they put it under a basket. They would put it on a lampstand. You would see such lampstands even in the temple. There, there has to be a raising of the light to illuminate. Verse 22, for nothing is hidden except to be revealed, nor has anything been secret, but that it will come to light. If anyone hears, let him have ears to hear. Now, how can the truth of Jesus take action into our life? First, from verse 21, please understand, no truth was ever intended to be concealed. When Jesus speaks through his word, when the Holy Spirit speaks, the emphasis lies upon the truth being applied to our lives. No truth was revealed to be concealed. And the idea of concealed doesn't just mean to, to be hidden, but to be hidden from usefulness, like the light being put under the basket or under the bed. The truth was meant not to be pushed back and useless, but useful, applied to our lives, leading us to obey what Jesus has said. This so resonates his kingdom teachings we are not to live according to the rules that we have created in our minds or others have created for us according to this land. We are to live as citizens of the kingdom and according to the principles and values of our Lord that he has manifested as a part of his kingdom. And so first, how does the truth take action in our life? We can't conceal the truth. The truth must not be concealed, but applied. And then at verse 22 uh, nothing is hidden that will be revealed and it will bring light. So secondly, the truth brings light to our hearts. The truth lightens and enlightens. The truth references revelation of God's truth so that every piece of darkness that we may harbor in our life becomes exposed to the light of God's truth and thereby we are changed. So truth can't be concealed. It must be applied. Truth lightens every area so that we're surrendering all things to the Lord. And then verse 24, and then Jesus said, take care what you listen to. By your standard of measure, it will be measured to you and more will be given to you. For whoever has to him more shall be given and whoever does not have even what he has will be taken away. This resonates well with a parable in Matthew chapter 25, the parable of receiving and giving. Talents are received and according in obedience to the Lord, they're given, they're, they're applied, they're invested, they're, they're obeyed. And worked out. And so here, truth takes on this function. So how can truth become action? It becomes action when we receive and realize our response to the truth is measured by the truth we've received. How can we receive the truth and there be no action to follow up? And so the truth we receive is our gift. We have received it. And now we give that truth by living it out in our lives. So this becomes how truth takes on action in our lives. We can't conceal it. We must apply it. The truth must illumine every part of our lives. We must allow that so that we see those dark corners and, and confess that sin to Jesus and become surrendered to him. And then as we receive the truth, that dictates our response. We, we should not have less response 
than the truth we've received. That would be inaccurate. What we've received, we apply and we live out. This becomes a beautiful uh, incarnation of the truth. Consider the difference between what some have called truth bombs and incarnational living. Truth bombs represent those statements that are true, but they're given in such a way with nothing of real life backing those truths up that people find uh, difficulty in believing the truth. Sometimes someone may post a meme, but their lifestyle behind that meme, which might be a Bible verse, may be in direct contrast to the truth that they've just posted. Someone can look at that truth and say, well, that truth means nothing to me because that truth has not become incarnational in the person who's posted the truth. And so we need to know the difference between truth bombs and incarnational living. A truth bomb is just stating a truth. We do that with our friends. We do it in church. We do it to our children. Why drop truth bombs when you can allow the truth to take over your life and allow that truth to become incarnational in you so that you're living out the truth? We borrow that term incarnational from God becoming flesh in Jesus, and we borrow that not because we can be equal to, to that incarnation, but we can live incarnationally, meaning the truth of Jesus can come alive in our lives. So let's not just drop the truth on people. Let's not just drop truth bombs. Let's, let's truly have incarnational living with the truth. Now let's move to a third parable real quickly. I know the clock is speeding and we're going to speed up with the clock because there's much here. So let's look at a third parable real quickly and we move to a third truth, assurance. What have we discovered so far? Careful attention, consistent action to the truth, and then assurance of what the truth will accomplish. I just want to read these verses to you. They're so powerful. Verse 26 through 29. And then Jesus was saying, the kingdom of God is like a man who casts seeds upon the soul. Here again, the sower and the soul, but with a different nuance from our Lord, with a different meaning. And the man who sowed the seed goes to bed at night and gets up by day. And the seed has sprouted and grown, but he himself doesn't know how. He just knows God brought this seed to existence. The soil produces crops by itself. First the blade, then the head, then the mature grain in the head. But when the crop permits, he immediately puts the sickle, meaning the blade that will harvest the wheat that is to come. Can I assure you? Well, actually, let me rephrase this. Can you allow the word of God to assure you? The words of Jesus himself, our risen Savior and Lord, who lived on this earth and died and rose again and ascended into heaven. He's always existed. He, he lived. He died. He rose again. He always will be. Hear the words of Jesus say to you that when you allow the truth to be applied to your life, the harvest from that truth becomes guaranteed. We may not know how, but when you live out the truth, God will bless his truth as we put his truth to action in our lives. Now, this parable of growth, as I like to term verse 26 through 29, can actually be called first a parable of guaranteed growth. God brings the growth. Uh, the, the, the analogy in the parable, a man sows, he goes to bed, he wakes up, the seed is there and the seed makes a plant, the plant makes a crop. The man does not know all of the intricate details of how that happens, but God brought it to pass. And so he knows that when there's good seed and good soil, growth is guaranteed. So we could label these verses 
a parable of guaranteed growth. But we could also label this parable the parable of patience. Yes, and I know you do not like that title over the others, but here comes the meaning of the parable of patience. According to the parable, the man goes to bed at night and when he gets up, the seed sprouts. The seed grows. First, the blade, then the head, and then the grain in the head. Do you see the process? Oh, listen, allow the word of God to take full measure in your life. Allow the process of God's word changing you. Be assured he will bring a harvest. But have the patience of waiting as God brings blessings in your life to his word that you're desiring to apply and to live out. Yes, this could be called the parable of patience. But this could also be called third, the parable of the harvest. Because once that seed is there and the head is full, here comes the sickle to bring in the harvest. And Galatians 6 reminds us, if you do not grow weary, you will reap a harvest if you do not faint. For you and for me alike, wherever you may be postured right now in faith, even if you're just leaning in, wondering what it means to truly know Jesus, when you respond to the truth of Jesus with all your heart, a harvest will come. I can't tell you what that harvest will look like and the magnitude or the depth or the width or the breadth, but I can tell you God will not dishonor his word. He will bless his word. Will you follow him? Will you listen to Jesus? And will you have the assurance that yes, what he said, he will do. And there's a final parable we'll close with that brings us a fourth truth, anticipation. Yes, what have we discovered? We've discovered a, a careful attention, consistent action, and confident assurance, and then clear anticipation. Verse 30 through 34, the final parable speaks of the mustard seed. And we close with this. A mustard seed is so small, but it will yield a shrub and even a tree with branches so large, birds can light and the branch can even provide shade. This becomes the message of verse 30 through 32. And the emphasis falls to how little a mustard seed measures, but can bring a magnificent impact. Now the smallest seed in Palestine would actually be the cypress seed, but the mustard seed was the analogous common referral of whatever someone would call minute. Excessive minuteness would always point to the analogy of a mustard seed. And so here Jesus knew that in his listeners and said, hey, it's like a mustard seed. This is the kingdom. There's something small that God does in your life and it begins to build and it can become magnificent. That's why we can call this parable uh, the parable of anticipation. Uh, this is a great truth that we would anticipate what God will do and how he will do his great work as we lean forward to say, God, I want to obey your word, Jesus. I hear you speaking and I trust you and I follow you so that you can have your way in me. What an amazing truth that we can anticipate as we obey and listen to the words of Jesus that he indeed will respond Thomas Jefferson commissioned Lewis and Clark to find the source of the Missouri River. On August 12, 1805, a member of their expedition, Private Hugh McNeil, stood one foot on each side of the, river, of the little rivulet that would soon uh, be traced to track the, the amazing size of the Missouri River that would flow right into the Mississippi. 
But isn't it amazing something so vast as the Missouri that leads into the Mississippi started with a small spring. The source was very small, but becomes a magnificent flow of water. And you know, Lewis and Clark learned that in the uh, in the expedition of of uh, of mapping the Northwest. But you and I can know this truth right where we're sitting at this very moment that a mustard seed faith can accomplish much. <laughs> Even if you feel like your commitment to Jesus is the size of a mustard seed and not the size of the Mississippi River, still trust him, obey him, follow him, hear his words and anticipate that as you obey him, he'll do great things in your life. You may feel like you've started too late, but you haven't right now. Whatever Jesus has said to you in these last few moments, just say, Jesus, yes, I'll do what you say. And when you take that step of faith, you will be amazed at how those small steps will bring an amazing movement of our Lord in your life. Don't give up. Don't doubt. Trust him. Hear his words. Listen to him. And this becomes the message of the parables of Mark chapter 4. Let's hear our Lord. Let's listen to the words of Jesus and let's anticipate with joy what he will do as we trust and obey him. Father God, thank you for this truth. Thank you for those that have gathered as we depart uh, from this time of, of, of worship and, and study. May our lives take on the posture that your son Jesus taught us in these parables. And Father, may we truly listen carefully and have consistent action. And may we be assured that your seed is planted and will bring a harvest and help us to anticipate what you do as we, uh, as we trust and follow your word. Thank you, Jesus, for your love. Thank you for dying on the cross and rising again and being seated at the right hand of the Father that gives us life and truth and victory and help us to trust you and to hear your words and to follow. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And together we said, amen. Wow, what an amazing journey we took through Mark chapter four. I am so excited about this study. All these truths, who Jesus is, what he has said, moves us forward as we truly lean in and engage with his truth and obey and follow him. There's a website location right now. Please check that out. If you're new to this broadcast, hey, you, you are seeing just a small part, meaning me, of a huge family of ministry. And we'd love to invite you in. Reach out in that website. We'd love to reach out to you. If you need to know what it means to follow Jesus and have a relationship with him, reach out. We want to respond to you now. Thank you for being a part of this time together. Come see us on site when you can. All the information is on our website. Love you a lot. I've enjoyed this time with you. We'll see you next week in Mark chapter five. I'm excited about this. God bless.